Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. This week's guest is a Filipina-American author, artist, and educator. She was recently published in Elron Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future, Volume 37, with her story Argentum, A Dream That Demanded to be Told. She has published short fiction and poetry on the semi-pro scene for years. As she notes on her profession, she peddles Shakespeare to Philistines, aka high school students. Welcome, Ange Dockery. Hi, thank you. So um, I recently met you as uh, a winner in, in Rise of Future Volume 37, and uh, that's, just, that's just great that you've actually made that, that achievement, which begs the first question. How long actually have you been entering the contest, and how did you first find out about it? I think I've been entering the contest since about 2003. I was in college. It's been so long that I'm not sure how I <laughs> found out about the contest. Um, I either looked it up online or I read one of the books first. I'm not sure which which came first. Right. So um, that's a long time to be entering the contest. So that was, do you remember how many entries? Probably around 10 to 12. I get it. And along the way, were there like honorable mentions and, and things like that? That Yes, I did get a few honorable mentions. Um, I think it's funny because usually people get better with time and, you know, <laughs> they, they get honorable mentions later. I got on a bunch of honorable mentions early on. And I think when Dave Farland uh, became judge, I think that's when I stopped getting them. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like, the, I, yeah, I think I didn't get any honorable mentions from Dave. Um, until I won, so I get so um, yeah. That's that's a bit of a different answer than when I normally get <laughs> my title winners. <laughs> so it says in your bio that you've lived in four countries and eight states, and hope your wandering days aren't completely over. So let's explain that how you started in the states and the countries, etc. Well, I was born in the Philippines. Uh, my mom is Filipina, and my dad was in the Marine Corps. So they met there, um, was born in Subic Bay before it closed, uh -huh. um, which ages me. <laughs> and I uh, moved to the States when I was pretty little and my sisters were all born here in the States. So mm -hmm. we moved from coast to coast from my dad, you know, as he was stationed in different places. Um, and then he retired, uh, and went to work for the Marine Corps for the munitions department. And we were stationed in Nevada for that. And so I spent most of my formative years there in Nevada. And when I was a junior in high school, I won a scholarship to go study abroad in Germany. So, you know, I went to Germany on the Congress Bundestag scholarship and then off to college in a different state from there. And then I studied abroad in Japan uh, during college and then returned there after graduation to teach for two years on the JET program. I get it. And then now you're currently teaching, you're teaching high school now? Um, yes and no. So <laughs> I'm currently taking a year off uh, to be home with my baby mm -hmm. since I recently had one. And I plan to go back either next school year or the school year after, just depending on how the pandemic goes. I get it. So um, it was great, like I said, uh, to meet you recently at the Rise of the Future week. 
And so I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm interested because a lot of the audience we have for this podcast are aspiring writers or writers that need that little, either the kick in the pants or the inspiration to keep on going. So on, now when you get started, did you do the online workshop that we, we, we posted an online workshop? It turns out to be right at the beginning of the pandemic. Did you do that course? Uh, I did right before I came uh, for the actual workshop. I get it. So how was that different to the week-long workshop? Because it's there you've got basically the same instructors, um, Tim Powers, mm -hmm. Dave Farland, and Orson Scott Card, who wasn't here this year. But you have them giving the basic, I think, 10 or 12 videos, plus the 10 lectures, uh, the 10 essays from L. Ron Hubbard. How did that workshop vary from the, uh, the workshop that you attended? I think it was good to have the, the online workshop first because it gave us a lot of really good information and tips about the craft of writing. Um, and I think it was good to have it before because then during the workshop itself, it could be a little bit more interactive um, instead of just sitting, sitting and listening to a lecture, which again, could be done online as we've shown. Right. Um, you know, we were able to interact more with, with the instructors. Um, there were different guest speakers that came in. Um, so that was, that was really neat. And we were able to critique each other's stories and spend a lot more time on that. Yeah. Uh, so we got to hear from each other. I get it. So, so you found like doing the online course, cause it's also for anybody that's not a winner. I mean, you've got 12 people that get mm -hmm. to enjoy this, this workshop a year and we've had nearly 6,000 people so far taking the, uh, the online course. So you caught a little bit, but a little bit more in, in detail, like the benefits of the online writing workshop. Cause there's a lot of people that are listening to this, this is their immediate avenue. They've got to, to get some of the benefits of the contest. Um, I would definitely recommend the online workshop to anybody who wanted to write short stories or write in general. Um, the two things that stuck out to me about the workshop that were different from other writing workshops that I've attended before was um, there was a unit on suspense and, you know, getting into how to create suspense in your story. You know, we always hear, oh, and a chapter on a cliffhanger. Um, but this went into a little bit more detail on how to do that. And I've never been in a class where it covered that in, in depth before. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And the other was um, the economics of writing. And, you know, how to prioritize your time, professional versus hobby authors. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about that before. But one point that they made in the, in the workshop was that if you major in English or literature, then you're trained to be kind of a hobbyist writer, you know, perfecting this one story until it's, you know, spending lots and lots of time on it until yeah. it's perfect and will win a Pulitzer Prize or, you know, something and, you know, you can't do that if you want to earn a living at it. Um, right. So it just kind of went through, you know, time is money for authors and how to up your productivity. And I thought that was very interesting as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, um, what, about 10 different um, essays from Mr. Hubbard that he'd, that he'd written in the mm -hmm. 30s and 40s to help aspiring writers and a lot of stuff from talking with Tim and Dave and, and Scott Card, that the stuff is as, is as valuable now as it was when he first wrote it. Any particular essay you found that was your favorite? I'm really bad at with titles. But again, I think the, the one on suspense was my favorite for yeah. sure. Because like I said, I hadn't, hadn't um, just classes never cover that subject. 
for some yeah. reason. And it's just so important. Um, if you want to create a page turner, I don't know how many boring stories I've read <laughs> yeah. from other, you know, amateur authors in writing groups or, you know, critique exchanges and things. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's really the difference between um, an amateur and a professional is can you write a story that makes somebody run up, want to read it? Right. Um, who isn't doing you a favor. I get it. That's good. Yeah. That's the name of the actual essay is called suspense. So, okay. so yeah, <laughs> I got it right. Yes. So now with respect to uh, the workshop that you just attended for you, what were some of the highlights? Um, I really liked getting to know the other authors um, who won and then being able to read their stories. Um, the 24 hour story, I think was my favorite part. Mm-hmm. Um, I had heard about that uh, because I know some people who have won before and, you know, they warned me about that. And I was thinking like, oh, how am I going to write a story in 24 hours? I'm such a slow writer, but uh, I was able to do it. It's not perfect. I, I have to edit it, but ending a story has always been very, really difficult for me. I'm one of those people who have a bunch of, you know, half finished stories. So being able to push myself and, and finish in that short amount of time gave me new confidence in producing work. That's great. Any particular of the judges that were there that are, that you were like, um, like just like fanboy that you were like, Oh my gosh, there's blank. Well, it was pretty awesome to meet Kevin J. Anderson, especially as Dune was coming out. I didn't, you know, get to interact with him very much, but you know, I've been reading him since I was a kid. I was, I would definitely have fanboyed out on Orson Scott card if he had been there. Yeah. I was like, I was disappointed that he wasn't there because Ender's He's, game is one of my favorite books ever. So yes, he just wasn't traveling at all this year. He's yeah. Just like, I figured. Yeah. Which is what we had with some of the judges. They just weren't traveling and the foreign mm-hmm. judges couldn't get in. Well, that, that's, that's good. I'm, I know Kevin will enjoy hearing that. And I always like to continue chatting with Scott card. So let him know that he missed another group of, of, uh, fans this year because he's he loves the contest he's been involved with it for mm-hmm. so many years so many years um now you wrote this story the argentum and it's there's definitely a lot of philosophy in that story whether it was intentional or not but you said it started with a dream so how'd you because it's, it's a fantastic story and it's just it's great how this being this you know that that got the people across, you know, humanity across the, the, the stars to this new location and what's happening there. So you said it started as a dream. So can you elucidate in that a little bit more? Well, the dream part was only, was the first scene. Um, so I'm a vivid dreamer. Um, and so a lot of times I, I do the dream journal thing and I'll write them down. And a lot of times I'll, I'll take, I'll, I'll use the scenes and I'll, as information for, or inspiration for a story. Mm-hmm. So it started with the dream was a scene on a train. Um, and so a lot of the care, the characters having a conversation on this train. And so I took inspiration for the atmosphere of the story from that. Um, but you're right that it does have a lot of philosophy. Um, so my best friend passed away a couple years ago of cancer uh-huh. and he was, we are of different religions. And so we used to have a lot of philosophical debates about uh, religious topics because he was a pastor and I'm Buddhist. And we would, we were talking about, I guess, the nature of, of love and compassion. 
And I always thought that it was a human trait. I didn't think that, you know, that could come from a God or, or a God-like being that had no capacity for pain. You know, if you don't have capacity for pain, how can you um, feel sorry for somebody? How can you empathize, empathize with anybody? And, you know, he believed the opposite. He believed that love came from God. And so after he passed away, I had a really hard time um, with dealing with my grief over that and, you know, depression and missing him. And so I sat down to write that story and I just put it all on that page. And I wanted to put that debate in there and, Mm -hmm. you know, explore it on the page. And that really helped me to process, you know, my grief and, you know, move on a little bit. No, I definitely, that makes sense. Now the story makes much more sense now having you just explain what you just did. Cause it's obviously there was some story within that story, mm-hmm. you know, that you're able to write with, with such conviction, you know, it was, it wasn't just, you know, I'm, I'm watching this train pass by, there's an actual experience happening with that story, which obviously is why you won. Cause it was a really, you know, you told a really, really good story. Thank so you. in terms of your, your direction that you're planning on going as a writer, are you more fantastical or more science fiction? Cause this is, this kind of like crossed, this was like a crossover. It's definitely science fiction with a lot of the, the technology of it, but the fantastical also fit in there with how the, at least it came across that way. Maybe you consider it only science fiction, which you wrote. Um, I think it's, it's safe to say I'm kind of a science fantasy person. Um, I try to make it as hard as I can, but there are always elements in my sci-fi that, you know, they would say it's magical, like Star Wars, you know, has the force. Um, So like I said, I try to ground it in reality, but I do like to put in um, elements of religion or elements of, you know, mythology. Um, So I like to mix the two together or that, you know, that place where science and magic meet um, is kind of what I'm fascinated with. Yeah. Like Anne McCaffrey who wrote the dragon riders. Oh, I series. love Anne McCaffrey. Yeah. She was one of our judges um, until she passed and then her son mm-hmm. replaced her Todd. Oh yeah. That and, was neat to be able to hear him speak at the workshop. Yeah. And she just persisted in her perspective that all she ever wrote was science fiction. All the dragon riders, those were science fiction stories, not fantasy stories. It was grounded in science that they, the way they arrived there creating the dragons was through science. She said, Nope, I wrote science fiction. You know, she was, she was very adamant about that. So um, I've definitely, you know, experienced that and that's, that's totally fine. I know. And there's some authors too who write science fiction, but then they, they claim a different genre or subgenre just based upon where the audience is that they, that they foresee like Michael Crichton only ever wrote science fiction, but he was always in, sold in general fiction, mm-hmm. you know, that type of thing. So in terms of then the types of, of stories you like to write, do you have any plans with like novels or are you going to stay with, with short fiction? What's, what's your plan to do now? Um, I consider myself a novelist primarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have written like two um, that didn't sell. So I'm working <laughs> on a third. Um, and that's what I do with most of my t- time, um, which is why I'm not a very prolific short story writer. Uh, short stories kind of have to wait for an inspiration for me. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, so my plan is to 
someday get a novel published, yeah. hopefully more than one. So now you've done, you said you've written two novels, but they didn't, they didn't sell. Does that mean you shopped them around and nobody bought them or you yes. tried? You, okay. Cause again, I just, I just did an interview with uh, AG Riddle and mm -hmm. he's uh, a, one of the top selling um, science fiction writers right now with his um, books on, um, like I said, on science fiction. And he went to self-publish line. He, he went and, and, uploaded on on amazon uh the kindle mm -hmm. and and proceeded that way and it started off slow but then it and within about six months he was um with his his first book atlantis gene just at that point just exploded and did really well with that and then the following book it was a, a trilogy that he issued all three of them within about i guess eight months or something like that that he did but he, he went through amazon the um KDP program. Mm -hmm. So that's another way as well, because it's the fact is like the number of publishers that exist out there are used to be the big five. Now it's the big four. Mm -hmm. And they'll publish, you know, in terms of new authors, maybe a couple new authors a year. There's, they, they invest their money in the, uh, the known and proven, you know, writers there. And if somebody's going to bubble up, like, you know, some of these independently published or self-published authors, then they'll take them and, you know, like the Martian, you know, that went from being self-published to now he's got a uh, publishing deals, but I mean, that's a way that can go as well. You know, mm -hmm. if you've ever, have you looked at that? I've thought about it. Um, you know, I go back and forth. I think I'm going to try the traditional route a little longer for a couple of reasons. One is I've don't feel like I have the time and energy currently to spend on marketing. Uh -huh. myself and I've you know if you want to self-publish you really have to be active on social media and you know be really actively promoting it and when I only have so much time in the day I'd rather spend that writing uh, than trying. you know I, I don't I just don't have enough uh, hours right now and you know I think self-publishing will always be there yeah um, so I think that's always an option where if I feel like not so much that I've exhausted, you know, the self, the traditional publishing route, but when I feel confident enough in my work uh, that I don't feel like I would need an editor or that external, you know, validation, then I, I might consider self-publishing. But at the moment, I don't feel like I have, that I'm ready to, to make, to hustle like that, yeah. that I, like I would need to, to not have my story just be lost to obscurity. Right. You know, there's also indie publishing too, you know, not mm -hmm. just necessarily going to the, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the thing with, with Kevin Anderson, because he's got his Wordfire Press that he created. Mm -hmm. For him, it was a solution to keeping his books in print because he's extremely prolific. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the regular normal publisher will keep a book two years and then it's, then it's out of print and that's it. Mm -hmm. And he had a problem with that. So he worked on getting the rights back and he created his own publishing house, Wordfire Press. First of all, to keep his books in, in print. And then he started finding other judges <laughs> for the contest mm -hmm. who were in similar straits and started publishing theirs, republishing theirs. And now he's been republishing um, the earlier works of um, Frank Herbert mm -hmm. and, and other classic authors um, just to give them a, give them a voice or a, a way to be able to uh, have their works be able to be sold. So that's something too, you know, just um, I don't know how much of a relationship you built with Kevin or to be able to get to, you know, chatting with him, 
but he might be somebody that'd be interested at least to start reaching out to if he's interested in doing something with your with your novels I, I don't know what they are but that's that's one thing that winners have always had access to as the judges who are sometimes willing to um, help them get that next 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 break well thanks yeah I hadn't really looked um, into indie publishing as much you know it the big thing seems to always be Amazon right now, but, um, you know, I have to, I keep forgetting that there are some avenues open to me now that I've won the contest that weren't before. Exactly. You know, now that I made those contacts. Yeah. Eric Flint's got his own, he, he won the contest wow, 30 years ago now. And now he's a multiple New York times bestselling author. Then he's got his own publishing house, which is, uh, an imprint under Bain books, mm-hmm. you know, so there's, um, I think we probably got three winners that have um, Dean Wesley Smith has his own publishing house, you know, so we've, we've got multiple winners now, well-established authors who have their own imprints that uh, one of the things that they love doing is, is helping out the, the contest winners so they can keep on, you know, surviving and doing, and doing well as, as a writer. So in terms of, advice then to the aspiring writer what were some of your biggest i guess up moments or successes and then some of the things that you really had to overcome that would have you know that and how you overcame them to to continue persisting with it with writing um well up moments definitely winning the contest was probably (laughs) the biggest up moment yeah i i would get for myself i would set goals. Um, Uh For example, when I was in high school, I used to read a feeling web scene. Um, And, or, and I read a a lot of different web scenes. Some of them have survived. Some have, most have not. Um, But a feeling is amateur, but, you know, my goal at first was to get published there. And the first few things I submitted, you know, I got rejections and then I was able to um, finally publish there. And so that was about, you know, an up a validation uh, and then I, you know, started to, you know, the, my, another goal was to win this contest, mm-hmm. which I can, <laughs> took like 18 years. <laughs> um, but, you know, whenever I, I think the biggest thing is to learn how to do things, learn how to deal with rejection and learn how to cons- constructively take criticism. Uh, because I don't think you can grow if you're, I guess, uh, if you're stubborn about criticism, if you're not open to it, um, if you take it personally, then I don't think you can grow as an author uh, because right. if there is, you know, a flaw with your story um, and somebody says, Hey, your story is not interesting. It gets boring on page uh, 16 or it doesn't get interesting till page 16. It needs to get interesting sooner. Um, then if you take that personally and as an attack, and I know a lot of authors who um, do take that personally, then you're going to, you know, never be able to improve that story. And so I think for me as an author, the biggest hurdle was getting from the point of, you know, this is my private inner self that I'm putting onto the page. And if it gets rejected, then that's like a rejection of myself and I can't show anyone. I think getting over that ego was what helped me, you know, get to where I could win the contest or you know, write something that people actually cared about reading. Right. Okay, that's good. And that's because that's something that comes up routinely that 
somebody doesn't want to submit their story because what if they don't like it, you know, or yeah, they just, they've already ruled themselves out of the game without ever even playing the game, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's really a disservice to the, uh, to the aspiring writer. Did you have any problems submitting stories at least even at the, at the get go? No, I didn't. Um, you know, I, I always submitted, I had a hard time, you know, learning to get over the rejection at first. Um, you know, it, it took a long time to where it got to where it didn't sting. Um, and it's still, it always is going to sting a little bit because you have that hope that, you know, they're going to love your story and pay you a lot of money for it. Uh, but, you know, I, at this point, I feel like I'm more professional about it in that when I get, you know, a, a rejection back, I can look at it with, I guess, more objective eyes. And it doesn't always mean, you know, scrap the story and start from scratch. Uh, Sometimes it means the structure of the story wasn't right. Um, Like I recently got an R&R for a novel and it was over the the structure of it. Um, And so, you know, I can, even though it stings a little, you know, I can take that and I can, you know, start looking at it again and in terms of, of the craft and seeing what I can do to like fix the story so that it works. Or if not, then, you know, scrap it and, and move on to the next project. Right. I think Kevin Anderson used to uh, boast that he had this, this container, he put all of his rejection slips in and he had over 700 rejection slips as an author. And he still gets rejects. Dean Mosley Smith, who's probably published, 200 plus novels and however many thousands of, of uh, short stories, he still gets rejects. And his wife, uh, Chris Rush, who is probably one of the most successful short story writers out there, still gets rejects. You know, it's just, that's just part of the publishing mm-hmm. world, you know. And what people don't realize is you can write a story. It's a great story. It's brilliant. But that magazine that you just sent it to just publish a story like that or the same subgenre or the same theme in the last issue. So they're just not looking for that. So they're going to reject it. Nothing to do with your story, but just they're not looking for that. And some people don't look at the reasons why a story might be rejected. It could be nothing whatsoever to do with the story or the quality of the story. Just be, they're not looking for that. The other thing too, is you have to really look at what does that magazine publish? You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. writers will send something out there. Let's just shoot it everywhere, but it's not even with the magazine or that, uh, anthology publishes those types of stories. Yeah. Reading the guidelines is definitely a way you can show respect to the editor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you're not being professional if you're throwing spaghetti at the wall and sending like a horror story to a romance, you know, magazine or, you know, whatever. Um, but I would say still be persistent if you have confidence in a story, because a lot of the, rejects rejections I got from writers of future I sold in semi-pro magazines mm-hmm. um and they just probably like there was one that I was the very first story I sold for money was not even an honorable mention in writers of future because for a long time like I always every time I wrote a story I'd send it to writers of future first and I'd wait for the rejection before I'd send it to other places but then the second magazine I sent it to snapped it up right away um, because it was in their wheelhouse. They, the editor said, I love Americana. It was like a coyote myth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it was just not sci-fi enough for writers of the future, but it fit with 
with that, that magazine. So, yeah, Orson Scott Card used to say, "This is when he had the Intergalactic Medicine Show mm -hmm. magazine that he published." He, he made a comment. This is one of the interviews I did with him. It's just it's really interesting that I publish what writers of the future rejects, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. So, but he, you know, he's been a judge for well over thirty years as for writers of the future and uh, has been a really strong proponent of it because you know what does make it in there is um is the best of the best and that's obviously what you qualify as but there was one year a few years ago that there were three werewolf stories and dave Farland says they're all great werewolf stories but he's not going to buy three stories for rise of the future so he took one mm -hmm. and he said any one of those could have easily won but he had to choose between the three and um that's just one of those things you know that happens in short story publishing is and especially the number of entries that the contest gets because we get thousands every quarter and it's um uh, something that people just need to, to really learn and know that you have to persist and keep on submitting and it is a matter of honing one's craft which which the contest does and now when people do get an honorable mention, they can put that in resumes now and it takes their stories out of slush piles. Mm -hmm. You know, so now you you teach English? Is that what you teach yes. in high school? So how much does your I know what they said in the in the workshop about, you know, if you're an English major, how that affects your your writing style, but how do you feel like you approach writing as an English teacher? Uh well I came to teaching a little bit, teaching English a little bit late, later in life. Um, my background was in political science and law. And when I started getting serious about pursuing writing as a career, I decided to, you know, take the qualifications to become an English teacher, because I figured if I could teach it, then I can probably do it and apply it. And I think it's, it's helped me grow as a writer, uh, because I see a lot of the wrong way to write. Yeah. And focus on you know helping people improve having helping students improve their writing style um and you know i do a lot more reading and analyzation of you know stories and literature um and since i wasn't an english major i hadn't really done that before um and so i think my writing has grown since being a teacher and i think my grammar has improved slightly not as much as people would think <laughs> But do you do you find that you're having traveled all over, you know, the, all the various states that that's actually improved your your bullpen on on writing or how do you come up with your do you rely on your research? Do you do you then hit the Internet or the library or do you rely also upon your various experiences being the, the daughter of of a military traveling all over the world? I definitely rely on my experiences a lot. You know, even in the Argentum, the uh, the main character is a miner, uh, not a child, but a somebody mm -hmm. who digs up rocks. And I did have to do you know extensive research on that. Um, but you know, I spent a lot of time in Nevada and you know wandering around the desert. And my dad would take me rock hunting, and um, so I developed you know an interest in geology. And so. You know, a lot of there's the experience um, from that, like it, behind the decision to make her that profession. 
so, you know, I, you have to have some experience as a write or as a person to be able to write. And I think that uh, that's also why I'm okay with not being successful young. Mm-hmm. I know like there's a lot of wonder, wonderkins now that, you know, hit it big at age 25, but I feel like the best writers or the writers I enjoy reading the most um, have aged a little bit and have experienced a little bit more of the world. They have a deeper understanding of the human condition. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, like I said, I'm okay with my success coming a little bit later. I think that I need to earn my way to it. Yeah. Like in, in your story there, the, the main character's dad was an engineer by trade and a mythologist at heart. So I wasn't sure how much you pulled from your, like I said, you were, were you born and raised Buddhist and then maintain that? Or that's something that evolved for you? Cause you definitely have, you talk about the, um, the Bhagavad Gita. Well, that's Hindu, but um, yeah, I know that's, what yeah. I'm, that's what I'm wondering now how that um, it's well. So the Philippines is, is a strange mix of, of cultures and religions. Um, so it's called a Catholic country. Right. Um, but if you really look at their practices, there's a lot of animism and Buddhist like beliefs that are still like ingrained. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think a Filipino Catholic is very different from, you know, somebody who was born and raised in New York, for example. Uh, so I'd say I, I would have considered myself more Christian as when I was a kid. Um, but it never, it never sat well with me. And uh-huh. so I came to Buddhism a little bit later in life. Um, I still don't practice it. Buddhism is just the easiest way to describe my beliefs. So that's why I tell people. Um, but I think that, I think there is a universal truth and you can, if you really look at the core of a lot of different religions, you can find it. Um, so I think a lot of the rituals and things are just window dressing to comfort us, but there are truths to, you know, a lot of the religions and all those other differences are just extraneous. So I get it. So the fact that you've got yeah, there's just, like I said, there's just different, you know, your philosophy definitely, um, as you described earlier on with the loss of your, of your very close friend, that, that rings throughout the, the story as, as an explanation of, of how, that, how that character comes to, to be there and then how it ends up in, in the end of your story. So with your, and again, keeping in mind that the people are listening to this, a lot of our aspiring writers. Um, mm-hmm. So on, on doing your own research or coming up with your various story ideas, what are some of the, your, that you found work the best for you? Well, when t- I took a workshop with Tim Powers uh, several years ago. And one thing he always, he said, stuck with me. And that was that he, when he had a main character and he was trying to develop the character, uh, he thought about what do I need the character to be to make the story work? So what age, what gender, what race, what religion, what profession do I need the the character to be? And so I've started to approach it like that and then do research accordingly. Uh, So, you know, my, my story might start off with, you know, an inspiration, a a scene or a dream or, or something, but then, when I'm starting to build the story, I come at it uh, with a little bit more t- 
from a, like a technical perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my advice would be to, well, study plot, you know, get all the basics down. Uh, but then when you, that way, you know, like, what do I need to add to my inspiration to make this story work, uh, to make it click, to make it resonate right. with people. And the other thing is, I think that um, this, this came from being an English teacher, by the way. Okay. I think that stories should have a theme, um, like a, a deeper lesson, a deeper meaning, a truth, a universal truth. Um, it should comment on the human condition. And so you can write, you know, a funny adventure story, uh, but the stories that really stay with us are the stories that, you know, touch us in some way that resonate with some experience that we've had. And so that's the other element that I always try to add to a story. So even though I've got, you know, cool scenes, I've got an atmosphere, I've got a plot, um, I've got an ending, I've got a main character, but then, you know, what deeper truth do I want to uh, touch on in the story? Well, that makes sense on that. And that's, I know some authors don't like to go that direction, mm-hmm. but, but sometimes, again, referring back to Owen Hubbard on some of his, what he's had to say about writing science fiction, he said, are we, you know, as science fiction author, are we all philosophers? You know, because there's a definite sense of commuting some, whether you want to call it a higher truth or some, some universal truth mm-hmm. in a way that someone else can like connect with it. You know, sometimes it's easier when you take a setting that's on a distant planet. I mean, it's exactly happening right now, but mm-hmm. when you tell it right now, nobody's it's like, okay, they're preaching. But if you put it on another planet, another dimension, or another time, you know, aliens, you don't see the fact that you're just talking about conflicts right now on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're able to, to, to do that with science fiction that you can't otherwise do without seeming like you're trying to preach. Yeah. And I think science fiction, you know, is a unique genre. Um, I know a lot of people look down on it. When I was in college, I had a a literature teacher who was a famous author who, you know, told me, write something true. Don't write that silly Star Trek stuff. But, you know, Star Trek, for example, had the first biracial kiss on screen. Um, They covered a lot of topics. They had this society where they don't use money, you know, how anti-capitalist can you get? So even, you know, the silliest science fiction is imagining a future and it's either imagining a future that is dark and someplace we don't want to go. And it's a warning to us, um, or it's a utopia where it's something we can aspire to. And, you know, silly adventure stories give us heroic qualities that, you know, as children, we can see and, you know, hopefully, emulate, mm-hmm. you know, bravery, friendship, um, loyalty, having a sense of honor. Um, I think that, you know, people who don't read, that's something that sometimes they're lacking. And I think that if you read, you know, silly science fiction stories or fantasy stories as a kid, um, you usually become a better, grow up to be a better person. And so I think as authors, we have kind of a duty to think about that those things at least a little bit in our stories i think a lot of authors do whether they even if they say they don't i think they're still putting it in their stories uh subconsciously i don't think you can avoid it if you're actually once you're connecting and you're actually telling story and not Mm -hmm. worried about 
sentence structure and grammar and first person, third person, when you're actually telling story, your own self is going to, well, it'll come out. You can't help but have that because mm -hmm. you're now in your own total create on a thing, whether you're on another planet or wherever else, but science fiction kind of gives you a setting where you can, where you can safely do that. I know in the golden age, there was a lot of philosophy communicated, but there, because it was a time period where we just finished world war one, world war two was looming. There was, we had the, the Spanish flu, the pandemic had nearly wiped out, you know, 50 million people around the world. Uh, a lot of people were out of work with the stock market crash. So there was a lot of people that were very um, concerned and they needed the escapist fiction, which in science fiction was that last part of the, of the um, Pulp Fiction era that really grew. And um, it, does, it does do that. It gives one a sense of, of hope or a warning of what not to do. You know, the both sides of it was actually done very well. But what do you yourself as, as a writer hope to have achieved or accomplished when you look back and go, I did, you know, accomplish my dream, which was blah. I think for me, it would, it would just be to be able to tell the stories that I want to tell. And if some people read them, happen to read them, that would be great. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say no to a movie deal. Okay, but <laughs> noted, duly noted. <laughs> Now, in terms of improving your, your skills as a writer, what types of things do you do or would you recommend doing for, for a writer? Well, things like the online class, you know, the online workshop are great. Another thing I did for, for many years was go to con literary con conventions or sci-fi conventions. Um, they usually have panels on writing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I tended to, to go to of those um they're also good for networking and meeting people and joining writing groups so there's like two different kinds of writing groups and i know some authors don't care for them um so if you know it depends on your style like if you're somebody right. who wants to go solo and you're you've got your process and you know then don't mess with it but i personally like to be able to submit to people um that gives me a goal uh just don't try not to make submitting to the writing group your only goal. Like the goal should be publishing versus, right. you know, because some people, for some people, the, the writing group is enough to get that feeling of, oh, I've been read. And so I've published something and I've accomplished something. I would keep your writing group small. Uh, so usually in areas, there's like big writing groups. If you can, usually within those, there's going to be smaller groups of um, so that's something that really helped me, uh, was when I met my writing group and then was able to start, you know, seriously, like getting them to read. And that was, I think where I made the step from taking rejection personally to starting to see it as, you know, a stepping stone to improving my story and improving the craft. Um, right. because, you know, you get, you, you're forced to get over the embarrassment um, so your writing is no longer this personal, like, I'm, this is my diary kind of thing. Other people read it and then they tear it apart for you. Uh, so you start <laughs> desensitizing yourself to it. Um, and then that's really, you know, I think a lot of authors are very introverted um, naturally and we live in our heads. And so 
you need to be able to, to get out there and get in in front of people and, and do that interaction in order to, to really grow as a writer. Right. So as now we've touched on it, but I'd like to address a little bit more now. So you're a, a teacher, even though you're on a um, hiatus, hiatus. Yes. You're a new mom. And then you're a writer with goals to become mm-hmm. um, a novelist, published novelist. How do you juggle your schedules with these things? Well, you know, before I had a baby, I would write on weekends, you know, and vacations. Um, but I can no longer, you know, go to Starbucks and have my be caffeinated and listen to my headphones and, you know, get in the zone. Uh, so I've been writing when I can. The phone is like a wonderful device like this. I, I wouldn't be able to write if I didn't have a phone um, because now I write on Google Docs on my phone in the dark while my baby is, you know, <laughs> nursing <laughs> so um, or napping. And so that's that's mainly when I've found time. And I wrote the 24-hour story that way, so it works. Know, it works. It's not the it's not the easiest, and your thumbs will cramp. Yeah, but you know, it's not forever. So right. And then I guess you haven't had to do this yet. So when you were as a teacher, then you said you you did it on the weekends. You're writing mm-hmm. the weekends, and you handled your your schoolwork and and grading papers, whatnot during the weekdays. Mm-hmm. I tried okay. to anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So on, um, in terms of now, you know, again, we're talking about people that are, they're interested in becoming, um, a writer themselves. So when did you first start writing as, you know, as elementary school or where you became like addicted or at least drawn to the muse of, of writing? Oh yeah. I was basically since I could write, you know, hold a crayon. Um, I think I wrote my first story when I was in first grade or something, and it was about this uh, oak tree that I had in we had in the yard, and the landlord cut it down because it was, you know, scraping the roof. And I just sat there and like cried over it, and then I wrote a wrote a story over about it called the old oak tree, uh, where this girl saves this tree in a field from. Uh, developers by chaining herself to it. And then everybody says, Oh, <laughs> this girl, girl loves a tree. Let's, let's spare the tree. We should, you know, treasure the environment. So <laughs> I was also going to <laughs> elementary school in California at the time. And we were doing a unit on the rainforest and saving the rainforest. So that could have been where some of that inspiration came. Um, but yeah, I used to uh, write fanfic, I guess, before I knew what it was, where I would you know, I'd keep all these journals and then I would, if I liked a book, I would, um, you know, imagine myself or in the book, or I'd imagine, you know, sequel stories to the, to the books and I'd write them down. And, you know, obviously those will never see the light of day. Um, luckily the internet wasn't around back then, (laughs) otherwise they would be out there. Yes. But, um, I guess people don't, don't really get embarrassed about that stuff anymore. Um, Yeah. I see. How do you see the, now that like you, you brought up a good point here, like you have the internet and which exists now, but it didn't exist when you first started mm-hmm. any words of any cautionary tales or, or words of um, wisdom you care to share about how one creates himself or how one involves themselves with the, with the internet. 
Yeah, I think if so, if you're like me and you started out writing very young, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think there's this sense that the the internet is anonymous, but I think it's very easy to figure out who people are. Um, like there's people out there that are very good at that. Um, and so you don't want anything out there that can, that wouldn't reflect well on you later. Like if you would be embarrassed to buy it, you know, in two days or in two years or in two decades, uh, try not to post it. Um, cause it won't go away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you just think about like, I mean, it's hard to have perspective when you're younger, but it's just, it won't, this phase of your life won't be forever. And so I think, you know, what I tell my students uh, when they're applying to colleges is, you know, colleges look at your social media. They'll look at, you know, whatever website, high school kids don't usually have Facebook anymore. Um, but, you know, they'll, they'll look you up, they'll Google you. Mm-hmm. And if you have um, pictures that show that you, you will not be a credit to the, the university or you're going to damage their reputation, then they're going to move on to the next qualified student. Same with employers do that. And so if you're wanting to become an author with fans, then obviously you don't want to do anything that's going to turn fans off Mm -hmm. or, you know, make you hated. Uh, So, you know, be kind to others and just treat people on the internet like you would in person. Like if, you know, don't, don't be a troll or be really like bullying somebody because you think it's anonymous, like just, uh, it gets found out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what you say now can and will be used against you 10 years down the road on social media because mm-hmm. the social media is internet's forever. Yeah. It doesn't go away. So on, I guess, you know, so you've been submitting since you were, so were youth and now you're, you know, you're, you're a new mom. And you still have plenty of runway left for you, you know, to really build up a, a major career, you know, as a writer. Any any thoughts to, I guess, somebody who wants to be a writer, you know, because you've gone through. So yours is yours is a great story, which is why I was really anxious to be able to do this interview with you, coming from, you know, the Philippines, you know, these other countries, having experience being, you know, uh, you know, a daughter of of military and progressing through, you know, two decades almost of, of submitting this contest, what would you recommend uh, to others like yourself, um, whether they are um, young moms or they've got a career going and they feel like I can't do anything to jeopardize that because this gives me my, you know, I've got my roof over my head now because of mm-hmm. my job, you know, any particular advice or thoughts about that? Um, I think the biggest one is just to not give up or get discouraged. I mean, you know, don't, don't compare yourself to other people. Um, you know, you always hear success stories of authors who they were like, Oh, I was starving. And then, you know, but then I wrote and I locked myself in the basement and I wrote, and then I hit it big. And some of us can't take those risks. If you have a family, then you can't quit your job and, you know, go, whose basement are you going to, you know, sit in? And most of those stories are, most of those stories are fantasy as well. Exactly. Like you don't know the the truth of it. Like, right. um, You know, maybe his parents paid the rent 
so that he could become an author, or maybe he was working a full-time job and just that sounded better than, than that. So, I mean, you can carve out time of of your day. Um, You know, think of it as for me, like writing is relaxation time. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, I don't, so sometimes it does get put to the back burner, unfortunately, which, you know, if it was making money, it, it might not. But at the same time, like you do have to prioritize, like prioritize just like you would schedule time to go to the gym and take care of yourself. Like you want to take care of your mental health. So if writing is something that gives you pleasure, then, you know, carve out time for that and make it a priority and just, you know, keep at it again. Don't get discouraged. Even right. if it takes a long time, like I'm almost 40 years old and I'm finally won this contest. Um, you know, and I don't intend to stop anytime soon. Right. Uh, so, you know, I don't think, uh, age is any measure of success for writing. Like you don't need to be able to run a mile in a certain number of minutes. As long as your fingers still work, I think you can, and your mind still works. I think you can write. Yeah. I mean, this year at the, at the workshop, we had their youngest uh, winner. She won when she was 16 years old. Now she's 17. Mm-hmm. And then we had someone who's 67, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. and he was hopeful that there's going to be another, some type of development vaccine so that when he's, when he's hits 83, which is that point where it says that's your, you know, your lifespan, mm-hmm. that there'll be another injection he can take, which keeps it going beyond that. So he can keep on building his, his career as a writer. Now, in terms of family, uh, family life as, as a writer, as an aspiring writer, does your husband help open things up or make things possible for you to, to continue your writing? Is he supportive? Um, yes, he's supportive of, I mean, if he hadn't been supportive of me coming to the workshop, it wouldn't have happened. Uh-huh. You know, honestly, cause he had to take off work and, and come to help watch the baby. Um, and then my mother as well came. Uh, so I do have a lot of family support and he's always encouraged me. You know, he reads my novels when they're finished and gives me feedback. So I think having a supportive family is, is important. Because, you know, if it's, it's a hard thing to justify spending time on, you know, because it's, you hear the statistics and uh, as far as like who has, who makes money at it and and whatever. But so, you know, one word from a spouse or family member saying like, well, you're being selfish. Why are you wasting time on that? Would I think kill a lot of people's, um, but, you know, do it for yourself. I mean, if, if it's something you want to do, then just do it. I mean, there's, there's nothing stopping you, but your own uh, mindset on it. Right. Which brings up one another point that I just wanted to, to finish off this, this interview with is surrounding yourself with positive, you know, with people who are, are positive and, and remove the negativity from your environment as much as possible. How much do you feel that that's a factor in a successful career in creative arts? I think it kind of depends on where you draw your inspiration from. You know, there's, you hear tales of authors feeding off the drama and getting, you know, their inspiration from that drama. I'm not like that. I, when I get stressed out, I don't produce, you know, writing. Um, Or if I get depressed, I can't, I can't write. Uh, So I think, taking care of your mental health as a writer is is important as well. Like how do you expect your mind to work? Um, if you're 
under in distress, right? So same with like, if you're hungry, you're not going to be able to write well. Um, if your mind is not, you know, at peace, you won't be able to write well as well either. So um, I think definitely looking after your mental health um, and being in a positive environment is important. Agreed. Agreed. So um, as we wrap this up now, so do you have anything that's in the works or that we're going to look forward to seeing coming from you in the next little bit? <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to try to polish up my 24 hour story um, and submit it. I won't say much about it, but basically it's a murder mystery with aliens. Well, there you go. There you go. So for anybody listening on this right now, this is uh, Anne Stockery and her story, The Argentum, is published in Edwin Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future, Volume 37. And for those of you young mothers or single parents or family with a, with a new child, this gives you another perspective of, of how you can successfully navigate and things work for you to be able to pursue your muse with writing or whatever muse you choose to, to um, pursue. So um, your social media where somebody can find you or to connect up with you is? Um, it's on, I have a Wix page. Um, so it's angedockery.wixsite.com. Good, and that's where you can, they can find out more about you and who you are and your stories that you've written. Yes. That's great. So thank you very much, Anne. It's been great having this opportunity to, uh, to talk with you. I was originally trying to do it while we're still here at the, at the workshop, but it just got crazy there at mm -hmm. the end with so much happening. So um, anyway, it's been great being able to speak with you. Like I said, yours is a story I was looking forward to, to share with our listeners. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Ange. Thank you.